The appendix offers a precy of parts two and three written by Murray Stein. <clears throat> Please excuse my German pronunciation. This work, entitled Psyche, Zur Entwicklungsgeschichte der Seele, might be translated into English as Psyche, Toward a Biography of the Soul. The term biography is less ponderous than Entwicklungsgeschichte, developmental history, and aptly connotes what Karras is attempting in this volume. The problem before any biographer can be divided into three major parts. One, to explain where this person came from, his family milieu, important social and cultural movements of his period, etc. Two, to describe the development of the subject out of a background that he shared with thousands of others of his time, delineating his unique features and gifts. And three, to comment upon his abiding influence, the effects of achievements that continued beyond his death. Such a tripartite division constitutes the outline of Karis's psyche. In part one, the unconscious life of the soul, Karis takes up the problem of the unconscious. The unconscious, as he imagines it, forms the grand backdrop of nature and includes every individual case of consciousness. In part two, the conscious life of the soul, he sets forth a theory of psychological development and analyzes the contents and dynamic processes of consciousness. On what is temporal and what is eternal in the unconscious and in consciousness is the title of part three. There, Karras treats the problem of what abides beyond the organic decomposition of the physical aspect of the soul. Thus, at least structurally, he satisfies the criteria of an adequate biography. That Karras is more interested in consciousness than in the unconscious is amply demonstrated by the observation that part two encloses more than 75% of the work's bulk. So as to seeing Karras too much as a proto-Jungian, Jung was interested in the unconscious as a sort of investigation in and for itself, one must keep in mind that Karras's object in investigating the unconscious is merely to obtain the key to an understanding of consciousness. Key in hand, he quickly moves on to the primary object of his interest. I do not wish to minimise Karras's contribution to the creation of an awareness of the reality of the unconscious in the Western world, but only to put part one, which appears by itself in this volume, into perspective. The theory of psychological development that Karras sets forth in part two runs along two main lines of observation, showing one, how and where the phenomenon of consciousness fits into the overall structure of the natural world. And two, the several stages through which the human psyche progresses as it moves from the first glimmerings of consciousness to a case of full-blown self-consciousness, passing in certain instances even into a realm named God-consciousness. Putting both lines of observation together, one can imagine Karras's theory as a pyramid whose rising lines approach each other asymptotically. 
The unconscious is the base on which all of nature rests. It includes all chemical and other physical processes that run their course according to impersonal laws, without conscious intention. Its influence and power penetrate into every stratum of consciousness. Karras names this the world of nature. The world of the spirit is distinguished from the world of nature by the factor of consciousness. When a modicum of consciousness is present, one can speak of the idea as a soul, zila, i.e. a spiritual entity. Consciousness, as defined by Karras, is, minimally, the factor within a being that modifies the stimulus response automatism. Consciousness enters the natural world the moment two conditions are fulfilled. An organism comes into being that has, one, a developed nervous system, and two, sensory organs through which contact is established between its nervous system and the outside world. These two conditions present the possibility of optional behaviour. A fish, for example, has a choice between fight and flight. Karras names this first stage world consciousness, and wishes by this term to distinguish it from the next stage, self-consciousness. World consciousness is simply an awareness of the larger, extra-subject world without the conscious presence of the I-world distinction. From fish to the higher apes, there exists a wide range in the gradient of consciousness within this category. In its humblest form, world consciousness is merely the set of disparate sensations of a world out there. In its full flower, it includes a degree of educatability. The recognition of particular sounds, scents, persons, etc. And a moderately differentiated range of behavioristic options. The human being in the fetal stage is located in the category of the unconscious, and at birth enters the category of world consciousness. For Kairos, the birth of the human organism is also the moment of the appearance of the human soul. When the newborn infant first opens its eyes to the light of the electrical lamps in the operating room, it enters the stage of world consciousness. But world consciousness in the human vessel is qualitatively different from world consciousness in birds or fish, just as it is between, say, the rhesus monkey and the rooster. The reason for these differences lies in the differences between the unconsciously determined structures of brain, nervous system, and sensation apparatus. Although qualitatively different from one species to another, because each is conscious of a different world, and conscious of it in its own peculiar, unconsciously determined way, World consciousness is universally marked by a modification of the stimulus-response automatism. The degree of this modification increases as one moves his finger up the evolutionary chart from the first faint glimmer of world consciousness in marine animals towards the strictly human phenomenon, self-consciousness. Karras states it as a law of nature that as the compelling force of instinctual, i.e., automatic response. Behaviour diminishes, the tendency towards self-consciousness increases. 
he defines instinctual behavior as behavior which is a unlearned and b repeats itself exactly and endlessly well this natural law may seem at first glance a bit contrived and mechanistic but its flavor of validity improves when one remembers that in modern psychological terms the ego can be imagined as a complex with free psychic energy at its disposal where does this free energy come from if not from an energic diminution of the instincts on this point i find it helpful to think of the image of a dam as a dam blocks the natural flow of a mountain stream and channels the falling water through a system of turbines thereby transforming mechanistic into electrical energy so the ego archetype intrudes upon natural instinctual patterns of behavior steals a portion of the energy and transforms it into a quote free form whereas two unconsciously determined conditions must be met before world consciousness can make its appearance in the natural world four such conditions are necessary for self-consciousness the two mentioned previously and three a brain large and complex enough to hold together a vast multitude of impressions sensations images and other mental phenomena and four the ability of the organism to receive and respond to the outer world of other self-conscious beings a cultural aptitude animals and mentally retarded human beings do not meet these two conditions in Karras's view as Karras conceives the phenomena of self-consciousness it is not the work of a moment the spirit the term he generally uses to refer to the essence of self-consciousness develops in three stages one the comprehension and rational ordering of the outer world by what i shall call analytical intellect verstand two the production of new concepts and images from the given materials at hand by creative imagination fantasy and three the penetration through diversity and multiplicity into an underlying unity into the one by the faculty of insight or synthesizing intellect vernunft the first stage shows its most primitive colors already in the higher reaches of the pre-human animal kingdom where one can observe certain species performing within a sort of rationally ordered world certain animals can distinguish other members of their own species one from the other have a crude system of communication and can learn from experience the second stage of mental development fantasy is peculiar to the human world and the third stage vernunft which i prefer here to translate as insight opens the way from self-consciousness to god consciousness it is important to note that Karras conceives this threefold mental development not as a step ladder where each rung supersedes the last but rather as a continuous dynamic process in which each stage is transformed by the succeeding one the human being then passes through three major steps of psychic development one the revelation of the idea and the organization of the organism the fetal unconscious stage 
2. The revelation of the soul in the stage of world consciousness. And 3. The revelation of the soul in the stage of self-consciousness. Beside these, Kara sets forth three further stages of mental development. Using this theoretical frame of reference, we can follow the course of an individual's development through the specific life history. When the infant's sensory apparatus begins receiving the world, he is confronted with an enormous mass of strange new impressions. He becomes gradually conscious of the world, but cannot distinguish himself from it. His consciousness is identical with the immediate environment. In more recent psychological literature, one reads of the child-mother symbiosis, a unified world in which the infant perceives the mother's body as an extension of himself. Gradually, the infant's world enlarges. The father is taken in, and distinguished from the mother. The crib, the rattle, the dog. In the infant's ability to make these various distinctions, we see the earliest evidence of the analytical intellect, Verstand, the stage of mental development that brings order, makes distinctions, compares various sensations with each other. But one cannot yet speak of self-consciousness. The young child has not yet experienced the feeling. I am something different from the things I see, touch, hear, taste, feel, out there. The child continues as one with his surroundings. Karos speaks of the stage as the human version of world consciousness, albeit in somewhat advanced form. The stimulus-response automatism gradually decreases its hold, but has not yet undergone the decisive rupture that self-consciousness brings. With the onset of learning to speak, the two unconsciously determined conditions for self-consciousness come into play. A peculiarly structured brain, with an infinite capacity to learn and to make associations, and built-in access routes between the brain and a cultural environment, i.e. other self-conscious beings. At first it is all a matter of naming things. Daddy. Mummy. Horse. Dog. Etc. By this the child carries the distinction-making process into verbalisation. The most critical distinction he learns to make is I, you, I want, no you may not. This very trying power struggle forms an absolutely essential component of the development of self-consciousness, sich, selbst, fühlen, and it continues in a thousand variations throughout childhood, adolescence, and early adulthood. Ideally it stops there. It is the process of ego formation. In the heat of the struggle, the child's world is isolated and limited. He learns he is not continuous with everything around him. He is separate from mother and father, who often have a perverse will of their own. It becomes necessary to discover the limits of this restricted world. Hence all the questioning and arguing about what is mine and what not mine. Curiosity and the thirst for learning are concomitant manifestations of the first stage of mental development. What is that? Where do babies come from? Why is the sky blue? 
These are questions that enter the mind of the child as he struggles to comprehend the world around him. Even the most far-fetched and abstruse queries have a bearing on the problem of self-consciousness. For the answers tell us who and what we are. Curiosity can drive men to study ancient history, astrophysics, comparative religion, and other fields equally distant from the immediate issue of self-consciousness. But all learning functions to produce order through comparisons and distinctions, and within this order a man finds his proper place. Sheer erudition and knowledgeability are the final flowering of the fundamental need to bring the world into intelligible order. Creative imagination, the second stage of mental development, invents new ideas. Whereas the analytical intellect educates the individual by learning the order of the given cosmos, creative imagination moves culture forward by producing new cultural material. One can observe the beginnings of this stage in early childhood. After the child has learned to talk and has absorbed a certain quantity of information about the outside world, he begins playing the game Let's Pretend. This knack for producing contrary to fact material is the source of originality. To put it in Jungian terms, the suspension of the normal attitude provides the opportunity for entrance of the unconscious. Active imagination is a human possibility because man has this peculiar talent for suspending his everyday attitude. From this one can see that for Karas, the stages of mental development do not occur in a strictly temporal series, although the series does contain a temporal component. The work of the analytical intellect and of the creative imagination run, more or less, side by side, the former feeding the latter with grist for its mill, and the latter asking for the former that it maintain contact with reality out there. The stages of mental development fall more into a value hierarchy. The stage of creative imagination is more valuable than the stage of analytical intellect, because in it something new is produced. Creative imagination, in its more mature form, performs two vital tasks that are impossible for analytical intellect. One, it creates symbols of the idea, the universal principle that underlies nature, and two, it detaches the human spirit from the tyranny of the given, i.e. strictly empirical data. On the first point, whereas the analytical intellect is tied to the concrete and the particular, it is the spirit of classification and science. Creative imagination can conceive unified field theories. Thus, in science is the talent for producing a good hypothesis, a theoretical construct that unifies a mass of data. Creative imagination needs facts and concrete material to function well. But through the invention of symbol can penetrate beyond the pieces of data to their ground, to their first and final causes. It therefore frees the spirit from the empirical world. It promotes the freedom and independence of self-consciousness and prepares the ground for the development of insight. In translating Vernunft, as insight, I am departing somewhat from the lexicographic definition. The standard German-English dictionary gives reason, intellect, intelligence. 
In an age of rationalism and technological finesse, these renderings present a handicap to understanding the meaning of Karas's use of the term. The Logos of the Stoics, which connects the human mind to the universal cosmic principle, would be more to the point. Such a function is what Karos had in mind. Insight is preferable, because Karos's Vernunft bears a certain resemblance to the intellectual function described by Bernard Lonergan so exhaustively in his book Insight. Put briefly, and in very simplified form, Insight is the intellectual function that penetrates into the cosmic structures of intelligibility. For Karus, Vernunft is the rational function that grasps the single unity underlying the seemingly infinite diversity of the world. Creative imagination points the way with its symbol of the ideas, and Insight, following the lead, penetrates the idea directly. In this highest stage of mental development, self-consciousness fades into God-consciousness as the mind approaches ultimate intelligibility. Lonergan, following St. Thomas Aquinas. But on the chart above, the ascending lines of the pyramid are asymptotic, because from a human point of view, lines that converge in infinity do not ever really converge at all. That is, human spiritual development remains human and human self-consciousness can never be completely and finally transformed into God-consciousness, nor reach its ultimate pinnacle. Such a state of consciousness would be the total absence of unconsciousness. Before taking up the issues of individual personality differences and the eternal aspects of the soul, I want very briefly to sketch Karas's notion of certain psychodynamic processes. Like his theory of spiritual development, his analysis of the functions, Strahlungen, literally, radiations, of the conscious aspect of the psyche, has a tripartite structure. The soul radiates three functions. A feeling function, Gefühl, an intellectual function, Erkenntnis, and a volitional function, Willen. All three functions are present and operative in some form or combination in each stage of mental development. For the sake of making a complete inventory, one should remark that Karas devotes roughly one-third of part two of the history of the so-called radiations, Strahlungen, of the soul, and of this a disproportionate number of pages goes to feeling. Karas recognises two pairs of polarised feelings, happiness and sadness, love and hate. Happiness stems from two sources, from the unconscious, when the physical organism is healthy and vital, and from conscious perceptions of the world out there. Sadness has the same sources, only in their negative form. This pair of feelings is classified subjective and passive. Love and hate are the reverse, objective and active, that is, directed to outer objects and stimulants to action. Though it is objective and active, Love has its roots primarily in the unconscious, and they are bound up with sexual desire. Love is the inborn passion of the idea to find its completion and fulfilment. Conversely, hate is the inborn counterpassion, seeking to deny the idea's fulfilment. It is a thoroughly negative feeling and wants nothing more than destruction. The feeling function connects the conscious aspects of the psyche to the unconscious. Everything, Karas asserts, that occurs in the night of the unconscious, active and reactive, appears in consciousness in the form of feelings. 
the feeling function is responsible for the subjective, concrete orientation of consciousness. It is largely body-oriented. The thinking function, on the other hand, strives for objectivity and an abstract, detached viewpoint. Out of the frequent conflict between the two, a certain equilibrium is attained, and a more or less individual attitude formulated. The volitional function has the task of bringing this attitude into reality through action. Through the power of the volitional function, consciousness achieves freedom. Through its agency, the stimulus reaction automatisms experience a decisive rupture. Generally, Karos thinks the volitional function tends to throw its weight to the side of the thinking function against feelings. The unconscious does not know freedom and tends to be a rather pushy vis-a-vis -vis consciousness. Feelings want to dominate consciousness, but thinking has a larger, more objective perspective and often disagrees with feeling. The volitional function, the freedom function, tends in these disputes to swing to thinking and thereby to reduce the deterministic force of the unconscious. When the difference between conscious attitude and the tendencies of the unconscious, as manifested in feelings, becomes truly gaping, the dream enters as a compensating factor. Karas describes sleep as the return of consciousness to the unconscious. He does not believe in dreamless sleep. Because the blood, even during sleep, continues circulating and the lungs breathing, in short, the organic base does not cease functioning and therefore continues producing unconscious contents. These contents come up during sleep in the form of dreams. During sleep, the feeling function continues, but thinking and willing are suspended. With respect to the three stages of mental development, one can see evidence in dreams of analytical intelligence and creative imagination, but not of insight. Often the marks of self-consciousness fade back towards world consciousness. The dream itself is a compound of two elements, one, feelings, and two, ideas, images, Vorstellungen. It can be produced at the primary instigation of either component, either by feelings or by images, ideas, from the day before. In the dream, feelings and thoughts that were ignored, hastily forgotten and unrecognized during the daytime reign of thinking, willing, may be heard. Karras does not go into the question of how dreams might affect the conscious attitude. If, on the one hand, Karras speaks of a generic class of beings whose distinguishing feature is self-consciousness, just as one speaks of a class of beings called dolphins, he also accents the essential uniqueness of each member within the class of humans. Wherein lies this uniqueness, and what is its origin? To the factor that is not generic and not collective, but strictly individual and unique, Karras gives the name personality. Whereas self-consciousness as a natural phenomenon is common to every member of the class, Personality is the unique rendering of self-consciousness as an individual member. One can speak of the empirical existence of a personality only when a degree of self-consciousness has appeared, for its existence in potentia far precedes its existence in actu. For Karras, the personality and its uniqueness is not a product of environmental influence and experience. It is inherent in the fundamental idea of the being, which resides already in the fertilized ovum, and lies ultimately in the eternal mind of God. 
This is not to deny the personality a developmental aspect. In its original form it exists as potentiality, to bring it to actuality a concrete reality. A cultural environment and external influence are required. The first manifestations of a personality show it as weak and malleable. In reality, however, it is engaged in gathering the materials to build its own house. To alter the metaphor, in its early phases a personality is a bit like a photographic print that needs chemical washing to bring it into clear relief. The unique contours of a specific case of mental development are determined, in Karras's view, by the inherent freedom of the self-conscious individual. It is a person's volitional function that decides whether he will climb towards the summit of God-consciousness or descend into the slough of base feelings and depraved behaviour. But the exercise of the volitional function, of the freedom that is an inherent component of self-consciousness, is determined by personality, and the essential structure of the personality lies in the depths of the unconscious, ultimately in the mind of God. One can conclude, therefore, that, for Karras, the essential spiritual biography of an individual human being is written already on the small, fertilised germ of life with which the biography begins. When, in the third and concluding section of his work, Karras turns to the questions of the soul's immortality, he needs only to extend the fundamental lines of thought that run through the preceding chapters. Mortal are all those things that change, that come and go, that grow and decay. Eternal is the idea. A particular tree, a particular squirrel, a particular crystal are subject to mortality. But the idea of them, which manifests itself endlessly and in countless variations, is eternal. As proof by analogy, Karras uses the argument that the ideas of the ancient Greeks are today the same as they were then. The idea of the triangle has not changed. With respect to the individual human being, his body, his experiences, his memories, his thoughts and feelings, his fantasies, all fall under the sword of mortality. But the fundamental idea of his unique being persists. This fundamental idea includes both his unconscious, which actualizes itself in the form of a physical body and its continuous development, and his personality, which flowers and matures throughout the course of a lifetime. The perishable materials that the idea uses to actualize itself, the chemical combinations, the experiences, the thoughts and insights, pass away. But the ground idea and its final flower enjoy immortality. Karras speculates that this eternal aspect of the soul may, after death, manifest itself in a wholly new form, form unknown, somewhere, place unknown, for further self-actualization and self-expression.